Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. You ever have one of those uh, aha moments? Like I had this morning while I was having my devotions, praying about today and thinking about church and realizing I'm supposed to preach about fathers on Father's Day. Well, the video didn't work and the sermon won't be on fathers either, so hopefully there'll be something profitable for you. <laughs> it's a really good sermon. It's not about fathers. Although, um, ladies, if you want to make it all about the men, you can do that. But men, here's my gift to you. It's not all about you. You can make it about the ladies today, too. So, happy Father's Day. Well, I saw an article in the paper this week that uh, reminded me about my high school chemistry class. The headline says, Kendall resident hurt in explosion. Um, (laughs) Investigators, colon, man was doing science project. (laughs) An explosion caused by a backyard science project sent a Kendall man to Harborview Medical Center. Investigators believe the 44-year-old resident conducted the project in a two-story shed. He used an electrical current to separate hydrogen from water, then captured the gas in a five-gallon propane tank. And Whatcom County Sheriff said, Whatcom County Sheriff Bill Elfo, the man meant to use the hydrogen as a fuel supplement for his vehicles. Wouldn't have that have been special if he'd actually gotten that hydrogen into his vehicle? <laughs> But after about a minute, about, about a minute after midnight, the tank overpressurized and exploded. The blast rattled the neighborhood, <laughs> and so on. My high school chemistry class, uh, one of my classmates was doing an experiment under, under the hood, you know, in a, in, a, in a real chemistry lab. You have this protective hood with, with fire suppression, <laughs> among other things. And he's doing this experiment. He had, he, had a, he had a beaker and he put some chemicals in it. And, uh, and then he put another chemical. And man, a torch came out of that like an FA-18 taken off the USS Lincoln. It was, it was spectacular. And we were going, cool. And, and so he'd do it again, you know, and it was awesome. And pretty soon the teacher went over and, and uh, found out that my, my classmate wasn't a scientist. He was a dunce because he was doing the experiment wrong. It was not supposed to flame on. (laughs) My friend was getting a result which was wrong because he was doing the experiment incorrectly. We've come to Matthew chapter 7 today and to one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the Bible. It is used profusely by those who believe in the Lord and those who don't but it is wrongly understood much of the time. Follows, I read from Matthew chapter 7. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look a plank as in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before the swine, 
lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. What a marvelous passage of Scripture for Father's Day. A lot of people treat Matthew 7 and the first two words as though it is a sentence. Judge not. Anytime we say something that is counter or contrary to what they want, judge not. And they believe they are quoting the Bible. And they are as far as they go, but the period is not at the end of those two words. Whatever this passage means, it's the whole passage. It's not just two words. It's not just one sentence. It's the whole passage. And so we need to ask this question today. What is God's expectation for the authentic Christian in regard to judging? And I've titled my sermon, The Opposite of Being Judgmental. So I hope you understand today that is my goal, is to push us away from being judgmental people, but not to push away from what God would call, I believe, being discerning. Being discerning. God does expect us to be discerning people. Look at verse 5. What does Jesus call the people who have planks in their eye at the beginning of verse 5? He says, you're a hypocrite. Don't you just want to go to Jesus and say, judge not? You see, if he was trying to tell us, don't judge, right away after that, he makes a judgment. He says, there are some people who are hypocrites, and there are some people who are not. Look at verse uh, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. That's a judgment call. That is a discernment issue. And Jesus is saying, you need to be discerning because there will be false prophets. There will be people who try to get you to go in the wrong direction. And he said, the only way you can know who they are is by being discerning. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 is a harsh verse. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before the swine. Is Jesus saying there are some people who are dogs and some who are swine? That's really harsh. But he's clearly giving an instruction to those who are authentic Christians, saying you need to be careful how you go about your spiritual life. And so there has to be discernment in the Christian life. One commentator put it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is based on an ability to recognize different kinds of character and make godly judgment about such. Jesus even says that the righteousness of an authentic Christian must exceed that of the Pharisees. That in itself is a judgment. This whole, math, this whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and 7 requires us to be discerning. Um, another commentator put it this way, the entire thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is to show the distinction between true religion and false, between spiritual truth and hypocrisy. God expects us to be discerning. It is not godly to say, oh, I'm just going to close my eyes, I'm going to close my ears, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know... That, uh, that is not what God wants. God wants us to be careful and to be wise because there is an impact on us. 
But not only does he expect us to be discerning, look at verse 2. God expects us to be consistent. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. This really is getting closer to the heart of the matter that Jesus is after. He's saying, look, you folks are out there making judgment calls about all these people, and you need to realize something. You're going to be evaluated the same way you're evaluating other people. Now, when he, when he, when he talks about if, if you're judgmental, then you're going to be judged by that standard, it cannot be speaking about the judgment someday when Christians are rewarded for their behavior. Because God is only going to use one standard of judgment, and that is his word. God isn't going to treat you different because you were bad and others because they were good. There's going to be one standard of judgment. And so, in essence, what he is, what he is warning us about here is if you don't conduct yourself in a godly way as you are discerning what is going on around you, then other people are going to give you back the same as you give out. This is really, a, um, this is really a, an application of Matthew 19, 19, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question we need to ask this morning, if we're going to be spiritually discerning, where should our standard of judgment come from? If there is a wrong standard of judgment, what's the right standard? I think the right standard of judgment is here in John 12. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. This is Jesus talking. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus makes it very clear, this is the standard of judgment. This is the standard of judgment. If God is going to judge us by his word someday, it only makes sense for us to discern and to make judgments on behaviors and ideas based on his word. This is what the Pharisees did not do. Listen to this passage that's fairly familiar to us. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, a couple of phrases here for you to understand. First one is the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees were a religious group. You might call them the, uh, the first church of the Pharisees, a particular denomination in the time of Christ. And they had two things that they based their worship and practice on. One was the Old Testament. The other was writings and comments about the Old Testament. And those writings and comments are what's called the tradition of the elders. And most of it was an oral tradition passed down from generation to generation. And essentially, they developed rules based on the Bible which became as important as the Bible. And one of them was washing your hands before you eat bread. Now, it wasn't just washing your hands to be clean. It was pouring the water in a certain way so that you were ritually clean. What was ritually clean? There were rules in the Old Testament about things that that, that God's people could be around or touch or not touch. For instance, the biggest thing was dead bodies. If you touch the dead body, your relative dies and you have to bury them. Then you're ceremonially ceremonially unclean for seven days. 
Okay? And so this idea of uncleanness came into washing hands. It's sort of like we're going to be really careful to be, have our hands washed all the time before we eat. Otherwise, we're being unclean. So that's what he's talking about. They came and, and said, your disciples don't follow this pattern. Now here's what he answers them. He answered and said, why do you sin against God's word, the commandment, the Old Testament law, because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, that he not need, need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Now here's what they did. They're, they were responsible to care for their parents, in part because of the law that said honor your father or mother. And so if they were selfish and tight, they would say... Here is, here is my sack of money that I own, and I am dedicating it to God. Someday it will be given to God. And so when mom and dad were hungry, they'd say, you know, mom and dad, I'd like to buy you some groceries, but I've dedicated my money to God. And mom and dad went hungry, and their money did not go to God. It was just dedicated to God. And that was based on the tradition of the fathers. And they held that rule to be just as important as God's rule, which says, take care of your mom and dad. Hypocrites! That's what Jesus calls them. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is not far from me. But their heart is far from me. They are not, in the language I've used in this sermon series, they are not authentic believers. They are pseudo-believers. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now here's the place where we need to spend a couple minutes and really get our mind around God's idea. When he says, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, he's in particular saying, listen, you, you people who have made up rules, and now you are judging people by your made up rules, you're in trouble. How in the world could they come to a point where they said, washing your hands is, is if you don't wash them before you eat, it's a sin. When there was not one word in the Old Testament law about washing your hands before you eat. Here's how they came to it. How did they come to this standard? From somebody's interpretation of the law, and in particular, somebody's application. Somebody said, it's so important to be clean to be ritually clean before God, that it just seems to me, that's a key phrase when you hear that, it just seems to me you should wash your hands before you eat. And everybody who was listening to that rabbi taught, teach went, oh yes, we should all wash our hands. And before you know it, there was a rule and they were going, you didn't wash your hands, buddy. You're not a very good Jew. You, oh, the, he washed his hands. He's a good Jew. And that's exactly what went on. And it went on with all kinds of rules. 
They made up applications of the scripture and then judged one another by those applications. And so here's the truth for us today. My application of the scripture does not equal the scripture. There are many principles in God's word that we are responsible to apply. And in our application of those, we may give consideration and say, you know what, the best way for me to live this out is to do this. Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 14, 15 talks about living by faith, doing things by faith. And it says, whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. So you've come to a conviction about God's word and you're going to live it out. Praise the Lord, live it out. Where we get into trouble is when we then take our application, our conviction of the scripture, and we go over here and say, you're not doing things the way I do, I do things. You're not a very good Christian. Can't you see how they'd say that about Kathy? <laughs> she has so many faults. But that's the whole point. He says, listen, be careful how you judge. When I was in Bible college, in a choir, we were traveling around at spring vacation, visiting, going to churches and singing. And, uh, you know, there's 40 of us on a bus, and, and the, the, the choir director gets on the microphone as we're approaching uh, this town in California, and he says, now, I just want you to know something. This church has a standard for men's hair. Now, this was in 1974, okay, you know, way back before the Internet had even been invented, you know. But we're approaching this church... And, and, and the, the choir director says, now they have a standard, and the standard is your sideburns have to be no longer than the middle of the ear and the hair on top of the ear and no mustaches. And he said, you don't have to change what you're doing, but I just want you to know this is what their standard is. Do you know what that means? That means those guys couldn't go to church there. I mean, they couldn't serve there. How many of you don't know who that is? Oh, get, get your cable TV out. This is the Duck Dynasty. These are, <laughs> this guy right here invented a duck call. He invented a modification to duck calls and patented it. And he's a millionaire multiple times over. And they have all of this huge uh, industry called Duck Commander. You know what interests me about these guys? They're Christians. This fellow right here is crazy as a, as a loon. At least he's portrayed that way. And he, I heard him say on one of these episodes, there's three things I never leave, leave my house without. or leave, uh, never th Three things I always have when I go on a trip. A gallon of sweet tea, my Tupperware cup that my mama sent me in Vietnam to drink it with, and the Holy Bible! They pray at the end of every episode around the table as they're all having dinner together. The producers tried to get them to stop talking about religion and praying and so on, and they basically said, you can take it or leave it. Okay, These guys, you know, I'm not saying they're perfect, but they take their Christianity seriously, but they would not be welcome to serve in a church with hair standards. Now, somebody in that church looked around and said, you know, it just seems to me, key phrase, that godly men 
I ought to have hair like this. <laughs> My brother checked, yeah. <laughs> People like Jim Hively Sr. with all that hair cannot be godly. <laughs> now, in 1974, and in the 60s coming into the 70s, when the Beatles came to America and had long hair, I mean, it was way down to here, there was this huge battle in churches about men's hair length. Wrong battle. Wrong judgment. Do you know a whole denomination of of really godly people sprung up because one guy in California was willing to lead hippies to the Lord? The Calvary Chapel movement with over a thousand churches in this country and many large churches because they just said, hey, they're just people. So what if their hair's long? Now today, this is just an oddity. We don't care about that in church much. But there's other things people care about. There's other ways people have studied the Scripture and said, here is the application of the Scripture. This is the way we must live. And if you're not living that way, I'm thinking you're not a very good Christian. And Jesus says, don't judge like that. And the reason you shouldn't judge like that is because it's inconsistent. You see, while I might like to take my application of the Scripture and judge you, I don't want you to take your application of the Scripture and judge me. Because I probably don't like your application. In fact, that's why I'm trying to get you to live mine. Now, this is not, this is not to speak about the absolutes of Scripture. When God says, don't lie, there's no wiggle room. There's no interpretation of what that means. When God says, Save sex for marriage. When God says don't steal, when God says there is a heaven and a hell, there's no room for dispute, discussion, uh, or, or difference of understanding. But when we start taking the truths of the Christian life and say, how will I actually walk day by day, one step at a time? And there's room to make some different judgments. And Jesus says, don't be, don't be judging how one person does one. You know, several things come to mind that are constantly debated, clothing and personal adornment. And I've used that word adornment very broadly. There are always areas in which we're making judgments. I can remember when I came here to church, came one Sunday night before I actually started working for the church. I came and preached, and one dear old brother said, uh, I believe you were wearing dungarees that night. You know what dungarees are? Jeans. Yep, I was wearing jeans, brother. Ooh, he didn't say it, but he clearly inferred pastors aren't supposed to wear jeans. Or maybe not Hawaiian shirts. (laughs) But it's Father's Day and I can do what I want. I worked like a beaver yesterday getting ready for today, so I get a day off too, you know. See, clothing and personal adornment. You know, God has something to say about modesty. That's true. But he doesn't say whether it's wrong to have a long beard or wear camel pants all the time. I know there are principles in God's truth that ought to influence the way we dress. 
Absolutely. But I need to be real careful about my judgment on your application of the Scripture. Styles of music in the church are, are still debated today, not as much as they were in 1974, um, but still debated. Um, one of the big debates today is schooling choices for children. When I was a young person, there, I think there was one Christian school in Washington State, at least one that everybody knew about. It's still in existence, King's. You know? um, maybe, I suppose Linden Christian was going way back in the, way back in the 70s. Uh, who knows before that? But there, was, there wasn't very much, and so it was like, Christian school, what's that? You know? But it wasn't long before people were saying, do your kids go to the Christian school or the public school? And there was judgment going on. Now, there's three choices. There's homeschooling, and there's judgment going on. We ought to make a choice. We ought to have a conviction. But we need to realize it is my application of the Scripture, and so I don't get to make judgments about other people. That's what Jesus or God is talking about in Romans 14. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or fall. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And what is he saying? Who is the another, the master of that servant? It's God. I am God's servant. You are God's servant. And he says, you're a slave. You don't get to look over at that other servant and say, you're messed up. He has to relate to his master on his own. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We need to be consistent and the only way to be consistent in our judgment is to use God's word and then to realize when there are issues that I, it is not thus saith the Lord and to let people have some liberty doesn't mean we don't pray, doesn't mean we don't try to influence, but we be very careful not to put ourselves in the place of God. The next thing that we understand here about, about being discerning and about judging is this. God expects us to be genuine. Look at verses 3 to 5 in Matthew 7. <clears throat> Jesus goes just way over the top with uh, literary hyperbole here. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck and that word probably, you know, it could mean a piece of sawdust. It probably means a splinter, you know, like when you get a little splinter in your hand. How can you say to your brother, let me get the splinter out of your eye, but look, a plank is in your own eye. <laughs> a plank. I mean, this, obviously you can't have a plank in your eye and live. I, I did see a show on the, about real emergency rooms where a guy actually did have some kind of something that kind of like went through the skin here, and there was this giant thing sticking out of his head. But if it had been in his eye, he wouldn't have been standing up. But so Jesus is saying, you've got a whole, you've got a whole two by four in your eye, and you're going over here, hey, uh, let me help you get that splinter out, brother. He says, here's what you need to do, Mr. Hypocrite. First, take care of your own plank. Then you will see clearly. You see, the problem is not just that you're being inconsistent or self-centered or hypocritical. He says, if you have got issues in your life that you are ignoring, you don't see clearly to make a judgment. One of the 
vital truths of the spiritual life is that walking with the Lord in righteousness sets us up for more righteousness, whether that's a a decision to make or an evaluation to make, a, a discernment. He says, get the plank out of your own eye. Now, here's the, uh, I think here's the thing that we need, to not, we need to really remember. The authentic Christian who goes after the sliver in somebody's eye should be doing it because we want them to have clear vision and live for God. That's our motive. We're saying, boy, there's something that is keeping you from living for the Lord. So that's a good thing. If that's our motive... Shouldn't we also have a primary concern about ourselves? If we're so concerned for them to be living for the Lord, shouldn't we have a concern for ourselves to be living for the Lord? And so what that means is that self-judgment comes before the judgment of others. In fact, I think one of the things that Jesus, if we could summarize this passage, he's saying we need to have a a kind of a constant perspective of looking at ourselves and seeing, am I where I should be with the Lord? The Apostle Paul talks about self-judgment here, 1 Corinthians 4. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. He's talking to the Corinthians. But this is fascinating. He says, I don't even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself. In other words, my conscience is clear, yet I am not justified by this. Do you understand? He says, I'm looking at my life right now thinking I'm absolutely right with the Lord. There's no sin in my life. He doesn't say sinlessly perfect, but in other words, I'm, I'm right with the Lord right at this moment. He says, that doesn't mean just because I think that's where I'm at, he said, that doesn't mean I'm, I am perfectly right with the Lord. He said, I don't, I don't judge myself. But he who judges me is the Lord. He constantly would submit himself to the judgment of the Lord. Well, how do you do that? The Lord is in heaven and, and you're here. How do you submit yourself to the judgment of the Lord? I think you do it this way. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed. This is the mirror he's talking about. And he says we need to be looking into the mirror and paying attention and continually looking at the mirror. The reason that we have mirrors, basically, is because we cannot see our own face or hair. I can see my arm. I can't see this part of my arm. I have to go to the mirror like that. You know, much of our body we can see, but we can't see our face and we can't see our hair. So we have a mirror because we don't want to get up in the morning and go out looking like a mess. Although it's kind of a trend and kind of a style for some folks. It's, and, and some people actually call that being authentic. That's why it really was a style for a while, even for pastors. You, got one, you need to have one tucked in and one out Because if you have them both in or both out, that means you're trying to be two together. And it's really not, 
it's really not authentic. I even heard there are seminars on how to be authentic. I'm going to teach you how to be yourself. Okay, that's helpful. We have mirrors because we want to see our own face or hair. I can't see my hair even with a mirror. But there's a couple of other things I want to make sure are not present, so I do look in the mirror every morning. Some things you can change, some things you can't. Self-judgment should be conducted daily and regularly from the Word of God. Unlike my disappearing hair, my soul always needs the mirror. There is always something that needs spiffing up. And that's one of the reasons we need to have a habit of spending time with the Lord in the Word and in prayer every day. We need to get in there and say, Okay, God, show me. Show me where my hair is is parted wrong. Show me where my face needs cleaning. Show me what I need. And we have to look in that mirror, and we have to take what we see seriously, and we have to make changes. We have to not be just a hearer, but a doer of the Word. That's how we, that's how we allow God to judge us. And when we need, when we see the speck in somebody's eye, we go in that same spirit, the spirit which says, brother or sister, this is the Word of God. Not this is my opinion. And when we go, we need to go in a spirit of love because that's what God expects from us. This is the way that men will know you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. Certainly the greatest passage on love is 1 Corinthians 13, the one that really lays out what what Christ-like love is, is about. And I just want to touch on these and kind of run through to give you to give you something to think about in this whole area of being discerning. And the the first one uh, is very important. Love is patient. What does that mean in regard to judging? It means we have to recognize God's timing and growth. Somebody who's been living for the Lord for 50 years, I mean, really growing in the Lord, has got to remember that this brand new Christian who's only known the Lord for a year hasn't had the chance to look in the mirror of God's word as much as the, the older brother or sister. And so there's got to be some patience and, and, uh, and let, letting God work. Love is kind. Finding ways to help. It's not good enough to go and tell somebody their fault. We go to help them change and grow. Love does not envy. That means that when we are seeing a speck in somebody's eye, it's not because we're trying to elevate ourselves. It's real easy to say, oh boy, look at them. Oh, they're messed up. They're messed up. Oh boy, I'm worried about everybody except me and thee, and lately I'm worried about thee. And who is left standing at the end of that? Me. That's right. Here I am, the paradigm of godliness. Does not parade itself. Is focused on helping others, not showing their own greatness. There's more than one way to talk to people. 
There's more than one place to talk to people. And this whole idea of parading oneself is like, I want people to see how great or important or, or wise that I am. And that should have no part in our, in our discernment. It's not puffed up. This is the word uh, that's often translated pride in the New Testament. And, and it means to have a spirit of superiority. I am better than you. Galatians chapter 6 says, Now when you go to a brother that's overtaken in a fault, you do it in the spirit of meekness and fear. You know that little phrase, it gets repeated a lot, but it, it's a good one and it ought to be sincerely on our lips. There but for the grace of God go I. And we just need to go with that spirit of saying, Oh God, please let me be your servant to help this brother or sister. It's not about who I am and, and, and all of that. It's not rude. Finds gracious ways to help others change. You know, there's, there's rude ways to say things. There's rude places to say things. And there's kind and gracious and private ways to do things. It's not self-centered. Sacrifices personal rights for the good of others. If somebody wrongs you, Can you be satisfied without an apology? Or do you have to get what is owed to you? It seems to me that Jesus Christ is a great example to us of just letting stuff go. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not self-centered. This is not about me. Getting the speck out of your eye is not about me. It's not provoked. And it means just that. It refuses to get angry. There are a lot of good reasons to get angry. Parents, here's, here's the Father's Day part of this sermon. It's, there's a lot of reasons to get angry as a parent, but you have to refuse to get provoked. It's not because you don't want to be provoked. It's not because your kid didn't do something stupid. It's because you and the love of Christ are going to say, I am not going to let that take me over. And the same thing has to be true when we're trying to be discerning and helpful to people. It does not keep a record of wrongs. In other words, the past is left behind. The past is the past. In your home, when you have a disagreement, if you bring up everything that's happened in the last 20 years, you are not living in godly love. And the same thing is true when we're dealing with any other Christian brother or sister. Does not rejoice in sin. Not happy when somebody falls. I just knew the way they were going. That's what was going to happen. Should be brokenhearted. Should be sad about sin. Rejoices in the truth. Happy when somebody does right. Are you happy when people succeed? Are you happy when they grow? Are you going, great, that's what we've been after? Bears all things. Absorbs wrongs. Romans... uh, 15, you that are strong, bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please yourself. Believes all things, places no limits on what God can do. It's hard sometimes to look at some people and think God can change them. And when they come talking about change, we think, no, not you, not going to happen. I don't believe it. True love says, I will believe all things. Hopes all things. 
We are optimistic because God is at work. We're not optimistic because of people. We're not optimistic because we're such great discerners or judges or help. We are optimistic because God is at work. Endures all things. There are no lines in the sand. One of the tough things that families get to uh, one person or another, they will put up, put up, put up, put up with difficulty, and then a point they go, that's it. That is the line in the sand. I am not doing that anymore. I'm not taking that anymore. Godly love says no. We endure all things. And you can't see the last one. It says love never fails. There are no limits to our time or effort. Now that's going to sound different than something I'm going to say in a minute. And you're going to have to try and balance these things together. And I don't apologize for... uh, giving you a challenge in interpreting God's Word today because it's a challenge for me too. We need to act in love. And then lastly, God expects us to take judgment seriously. Look at verse 6 of Matthew 7. This is a tough verse. And I'm going to say some things that I'm 90% sure about. You don't hear me say that too often. I'm not sure that the way I'm going to verbalize this is the absolute best. For those of you that were in Sunday school this morning, you'll know what I'm talking about in terms of interpreting the Scripture. But I know there is something that Jesus is trying to tell us about the limiting of our judgment. He's saying it is possible for you to waste the holy thing, God's Word, God's truth, the ministry. It is possible. And so I understand that there are times to be gracious in the ministry to people, and there are times to move on. There are times to patiently teach and times to turn our attention away from the wicked, rebellious sinner. Now, again, love never fails. How do we blend these two things together? I think we blend it together in a couple of ways, one of which is this. There has to be an attitude of love, the the sacrifice of love that is willing to go on and on. But there comes a point at which we say, you know what, brother or sister, there just isn't going to be any more profitable discussion here right now. Let's, Let's unpack that just a little bit. In Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, presumably this is something you need to be discerning about and make a judgment about. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. This is an extreme event. It doesn't happen very often. But there may be times when we have to say, you know what, you are persisting in your rebellion, and so I'm going to stop trying to minister to you. God says, apparently, that that's even for their good. We'll look at another example here in just a minute. But this is serious. I don't take this lightly, and you shouldn't either. There should be a loving patience and much communication, but if rebellion continues, eventually there must be a turning away. The seriousness that Jesus is urging on us concerns both the wasting of time and the impact of our judgment on people. 
There, uh, let's look at this example from Timothy here. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge by professing that some have strayed concerning the faith. Um, some years ago, a couple of men uh, caught up to me outside the doors there and began asking me questions about uh, a certain doctrinal area, and, and I could tell within about three minutes where they were headed. They were headed to a particular application of the Scripture, which is not the Scripture itself, and they were animated, passionate, persistent, and so I did what this verse says. I walked away. They weren't interested in hearing God's truth. They weren't interested in discussing. They wanted to box me into the corner and pummel me into the ground on something that's not God's truth. And I thought of Matthew 7, 6. I thought of this verse from 1 Timothy, and I said, you know, I'm not going to have this discussion. Yeah, is that harsh? That's harsh. There are people who we should stop trying to help because they have no desire to grow in Christ. Now, I told you I was 90% comfortable with the way I was going to verbalize this today. I am not telling you to go out of here and, and, and somehow write off a bunch of people out of your life. There's a sense in which we ought to keep praying for people, we ought to keep working with people whenever we have a chance, but by the same token... Jesus says, listen, there's times you ought, you ought to say, no, we're not going on. I indeed is absent in body, but present in the Spirit have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. And they had terrible, a terrible, clear sin, and the church had not dealt with it. And the Apostle Paul says, I have already judged him. If you need any indication that judgment is appropriate and right, here it is. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not even there, but from what you told me, I have already judged him. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to, the to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow. When was the last time you heard somebody in church say, we're going to deliver this brother to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? Never in this church. I don't think I'll ever say those words. Because I'm not the Apostle Paul. That's a harsh judgment. But it seems to bear out what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7. We need to be discerning. And there may come a time when we have to say, Brother, you are a rebellious sinner. And sister, you are not living for the Lord. And we are not going to keep on... We are not going to keep on having this discussion. And it's a serious thing. I love my car most of the time. But this week I found out why the engine light keeps coming on. And I also found out what service I need to have done at 100,000 miles. And I don't love my car that much this week. Because it is poised 
to take a big bite out of my wallet. But you know what? I cannot simply ignore these things. Either one of these things will make my car undrivable if I keep ignoring them. And so I have to take that little light seriously. And I have to take the recommendations of the dealer about, about servicing the car and doing preventative maintenance seriously. Salvation and the Christian life are serious matters. Our sin was so serious to God that he sent his son to die to pay the penalty we couldn't pay. That's serious. I think we talk about the death of Christ so much that we don't realize what an excruciating pain it was for him and God the Father. They were both happy to do it, but not happy in it. Salvation is a serious matter. Our sin is serious to God, and so he took care of it. But so is our Christian life. Our Christian life is serious to God. And I think sometimes we're tempted to think, well, it'll all kind of work out. And we're not as discerning as we should be. And Christ says, listen, you need to be discerning. You need to make judgments, but you need to make them in a godly way. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to be strong believers in you. Father, I do pray that you will make your truth live in people's lives today, not anything that I might have said that went too far or went in the wrong direction. I pray that your truth will resonate in lives. And I pray that more than anything, we will not be judgmental, but we will be burdened for our brothers and sisters to help them walk with you as we are burdened for ourselves. Do your work in our lives today. Use your word today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.